open. Otherwise, your drive in London should be clear this afternoon. Checking in on local area highways, no incidents to speak of on the 401 to Windsor, the 402 to Sarnia, or the 403 to Hamilton. Now, from the 980 CFPL Weather Center, here's John Wilson. From the 980 CFPL Lexus of London Traffic Center, I'm Matthew McNaughton. Highbury Avenue at Kaleli is closed in all directions following a severe collision earlier this afternoon. Drivers are encouraged to avoid the area, and there is no word as of yet as to when the road will reopen. Local area roads north of the city by Lucan and St. Mary's are moving swiftly, as are those south by St. Thomas. Other than that, your drive in London should be nice and clear this afternoon. Checking in on local area highways, no incidents to speak of on the 401 to Windsor, the 402 to Sarnia is moving swiftly, and the 43 to Hamilton is showing no delays. Now from the 980 CFPL Beck Hearing Aids.com Weather Center, here's John Wilson. Good Wednesday afternoon to you, London. It's hump day, middle of your week. You are nearly there at the halfway mark. Good for you. It is a beautiful day on this Wednesday, June the 17th here in London. Lots of sunshine, blue sky. It is warm. Definitely toastier than when I went outside this morning for my morning walk. It's a lot more more muggy, I would say as well. I put on my air conditioning before I left the house this morning. And uh, when I got back, I was very thankful that I had done that and that my AC was working properly uh, because these are some uh, steamier temperatures and it's going to stay this way for the next several days into your weekend. So uh, that's what we're dealing with weather-wise. We'll keep you up to date on uh, the current conditions and what to expect throughout the next few days throughout the rest of this afternoon with our uh, our, our standard weather and traffic breaks throughout the rest of the day. Uh, I wanted to start the show off just by quickly going over some of the uh, local totals of the day. Uh, we had we have all of this information, of course, on our website, 980cfpl.ca. The latest is posted there. Five people tested positive for the novel coronavirus here in London, in Middlesex, since yesterday. Two people have recovered. Again, these stats are from the Middlesex London Health Unit. The update brings the local case count to 595, of which 462 people have recovered. 57, sadly, have died. And again, those stats from the health unit. The figures show that one of the new cases was reported in Middlesex Centre. The rest were here in London, which has seen a total of 556 cases. So one of these new cases is associated with a senior's facility and one resident with one resident testing positive there. The case has prompted an outbreak declaration at People Care Oak Crossing. That's a long-term care home here in London. It's the second outbreak to be declared at the facility following an outbreak that lasted from May 3rd until May 18th. Two staff members have tested positive there previously. Two other outbreaks remain active here in the city, one at Chelsea Park Retirement Community and one at Kensington Village. So that's some of the stats locally. Again, five New positive cases since yesterday, but two recoveries. So that's good. Provincially, we are sitting at 190 new cases since yesterday. Provincial total of cases is up to 32,000, uh, not uh, 32,744 rather. And the new 
Daily infection numbers have been on the decline for Ontario for the most part. This is the 10th day in a row with under 300 cases and the fourth day in a row with new cases in the 100s. So that is positive news. Death toll in the province is up to 2,550. There were 12 more deaths since yesterday reported. And there are 27,784 Ontarians who have recovered from COVID-19. And uh, that's 84% of cases. So. That's some good news there as well. That is uh, just a couple of quick updates in terms of our our local and provincial case numbers uh, for COVID-19 as of today. Give you a little idea of what else is coming up on the show this afternoon. We are going to be talking about eye health and specifically some concerns over uh, making sure that we are still getting our uh, usual exams are your just your your checkup for your eyes. They're important. You go to the dentist for your teeth. You should go to the optometrist for your eyes. We're going to be chatting with London optometrist Dr. Wes McCann. Uh, the Ontario Association of Optometrists has some real concerns about uh, being able to move forward with these eye exams and just having the proper funding for them. So we are going to talk with Dr. McCann about that. That's coming up uh, just in a few moments. Also checking in with Dr. Blake Pearson. We chatted with him uh, a couple of weeks ago. He is the founder of the Virtual Wellness Series, and he puts on these uh, online uh, discussions talking about different topics that people are concerned about right now with, uh, you know, in, in the mind of COVID-19, if you will. And so they are talking about how to help support people in the disabilities community. And this chat is coming up next week on the 24th, but we're going to talk about it and tee it up so people have lots of time to uh, mark it in their calendars and and uh, get get ready for it. So we're chatting with Dr. Pearson at 3.35. Also, are you looking for something to do? Well, Forest City Sport and Social Club has sent out an email about how they're getting ready to open up some of their programming again. So we're going to have uh, Kyla Woodcock on to talk about that. Uh, She's with Forest City Sport and Social Club, and uh, we'll get an idea of what's happening for the summer session and how they're able to move forward in the face of COVID-19. Also, speaking of things to do. Uh, Are you looking to go camping? Well, we have information about how the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority is moving forward with nightly camping. Yeah. So uh, that's, you know, sites like Fanshawe Conservation Area here in London, Piddock Conservation Area in Woodstock, and Wildwood Conservation Area in St. Mary's. They all have their opening dates coming up. So we're going to talk with Steve Sauter from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority to find out everything we need to know about being able to go and do those overnight camping stays. So it'll be it'll be a good chat. Also, have you heard that the UK, or I should say Britain, has now gone two whole months without having to use coal? They have not had to burn coal for two months. Yeah. So we are going to talk with uh, a professor from uh, York University to find out what this means and just kind of like really understand how how intense this is. It's a watershed moment because this is the longest amount of time that Britain has gone without burning coal since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, that's big. So that's like, I think it's about 250 years or so, somewhere in that neck of the woods. It's a long time. So we're going to talk with Dr. Christina Hoika about that and find out really what it means. And uh, also, did you know 
that scientists have started to notice that the Earth's magnetic field is weakening a bit. Yeah, it's very strange news. I saw this article the other day, and uh, I'm excited that we're going to be able to chat with Professor Phil McCausland from Western about what this really means. And uh, it's it's interesting because apparently every so often, and I mean every so often, a really long span of time, like hundreds of thousands of years, the Earth's magnetic field switches. It reverses. So we'll find out more about this whole process because I find it very fascinating. And also, just the last little tee up here, we are going to be speaking with Hal Johnson of Body Break. There has been a lot of discussion in the last several days about Body Break and how it came to be. And really, it was Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod pushing back against racism within broadcasting, essentially. And so Hal has put out a a YouTube video explaining the origin story, if you will, uh, of Body Break. And so he's going to come on the program a little later on, closer to five o'clock, and uh, talk with us about that. Uh, Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod, obviously, uh, you know, Canadian icons when it comes to their, their programming that they've put out there, Body Break, Stay fit, have fun, all that good stuff. So we'll chat with Hal later on this afternoon. But we are going to take a quick break for our traffic and weather update. When we come back, we'll be checking in with Dr. Wes McCann to find out about what's going on with eye exams in the province of Ontario. That's coming up next on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. Hope you're having a good day so far. Let me ask you, when was the last time you went for an eye exam? Just your standard run-of-the-mill eye exam. For me, it's coming up on uh, two years. I go every two years. But I know that a lot of people go once a year. When I was younger, I would go once a year. But there is concern being shared by the Ontario Association of Optometrists about the health of our system when it comes to these eye exams. Because OHIP has not, the cost of an eye exam under OHIP apparently hasn't changed in about 30 years. And so optometrists are helping to subsidize this system. And there are a lot of concerns related to getting people back in for their usual exams after COVID-19. And as we move through new physical distancing restrictions, there's a lot, a lot to worry about here. And joining me on the line now to explain a little bit more about why there is such concern from the Ontario Association of Optometrists is Dr. Wes McCann. He is a a London optometrist and he joins me now on the line. Dr. McCann, thank you for your time. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. It's great to chat with you. And uh, this is not something that I had thought of, quite honestly. Take me through what the issue is here uh, so we can understand uh, what's going on with, with the funding for these exams. Sure. So um, one thing I don't think uh, many listeners probably know is that uh, OHIP does cover uh, a certain number of exams uh, for patients. So if you're under uh, 19 or under or 65 or older or certain have, have certain medical conditions, uh, OHIP actually covers your uh, eye exam. Um, the challenge we're running into is that previous governments have really failed to invest in eye care and optometry funding under OHIP has been neglected, like you had said, for more than 30 years. So even as we return to work, many practices won't be viable, but uh, not only are we able to just see half the patients perhaps that we did before, uh, OHIP only actually covers half the cost of an eye exam. So for us to deliver an eye, let me use another analogy. Say you went to your dentist and it it costs your dentist $100 to see a patient. When you think of electricity, water, rent, 
overhead staffing um, and consumables and equipment maintenance. It costs them about, let's say, $100 to see that patient. OHIP actually only pays half of that. So they would only pay the dentist $50. So the dentist would be paying $100 to see that patient. That's the situation we're in. Or say it costs you $250 in gas to get to your job, but you only make $120 that day. You aren't even making enough to cover what it costs you to, to run your facility or to run your job. So that's the situation we're in right now. And obviously that's, uh, you know, a, a non-sustainable situation, which is why Absolutely. the group is sounding the alarm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been like that. It's, it's really been underfunded for many years. And it, it's not that we're asking to uh, it, get paid more. We just, we, we need to be able to cover the cost to be able to see a patient. Uh, as anybody would, would imagine, it isn't really fair to expect a small business or a medical practitioner to have to pay to see a patient uh, because the government isn't even covering the cost. Uh, other, uh, we've, we've seen a 10% increase in the last 30 years compared to 80% inflation over the last 30 years. So the government has not been kept keeping up with, with cost of, uh, of living for, for us. For sure. And, and, you know, the idea that there might be fewer of these exams able to be done uh, or that people will be, you know, slipping through the cracks of this system, it, it's it's really frightening because eye exams are a really good first uh, indicator sometimes of serious health conditions. Absolutely. You can detect diabetes uh, through the eye exam. You can detect uh, neurological changes happening in the brain. You can uh, detect early changes with hypertension, hypertension or cholesterol. And all sorts of things get picked up on a routine eye exam. And right now, the way that things are going, many offices have to reduce patient volumes as much as 50% because of COVID. Uh, and we're going to be looking at reducing almost 2 million comprehensive exams across Ontario in the next 12 months. So we just can't afford to, to continue to pay to subsidize the healthcare system out of our own pockets to see these patients. So um, it's estimated that about $173 million a year is being paid out of optometrists' pockets to see patients um, that aren't, isn't being subsidized by the government. Hmm. And so where do we go from here in terms of, uh, you know, m- trying to uh, find some change and make some change within the provincial government on this? Absolutely. So we're asking all, all patients out there or anyone that uh, feels that this is unfair uh, and uh, wants to voice their opinion to go to saveicare.ca. Uh, we have a campaign that's running there. And uh, when you go there, you can uh, add your name and who your MPP is, and you can search if you don't know who that is and send a letter uh, to your uh, local government official and also the Minister of Health and uh, and make a difference that way. It takes literally two minutes to do. Uh, saveicare.ca and scroll down and you'll see where you can enter your name and information to uh, send a, a letter to your MPP and also to uh, the um, uh, Minister of Health. Fantastic. Well, that makes it uh, really simple and uh, hoping that lots of people will, uh, you know, take some time and do some reading on this and uh, go to that website and uh, send some notes off on it. I appreciate it. And if you don't, uh, if you aren't able to get onto the website right away, I know that uh, it has been overloaded with support so far. So keep trying because uh, we would uh, appreciate all the support we can get. Absolutely. Well, Dr. McCann, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and breaking this down for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and uh, take care. You take care as well. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye.
That's Dr. Wes McCann. He is a London optometrist uh, talking about this campaign that the Ontario Association of Optometrists is promoting. It's called Save Eye Care. And it's you can go to their website, saveeyecare.ca. And they are talking about trying to update the funding that they receive through OHIP for those basic eye exams. And as Dr. McCann was saying, some individuals uh, don't have to pay the cost for their eye exams out of pocket because OHIP covers it, but they're only covering half of the cost. Who's covering the other half? Optometrists. So they're hoping that the government will update the funding model for this and uh, make it more sustainable because right now it's not. And there are a lot of issues that are coming down the pipe and a lot of people who are having or will have had delayed exams because of COVID-19. They're not going to be able to get through as many people and it's it's going to be tough all around. So if you're interested in learning more, go to saveicare.ca. We need to take a break for our 3.30 news package. When we come back, we're checking in with Dr. Blake Pearson, the founder of the Virtual Wellness Series, to talk about the latest in his law down learning sessions. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. Hope you're having a good day so far. A few weeks ago, I think it was back in, in May at some point, we were talking with Dr. Blake Pearson. He is the founder of the Virtual Wellness Series and the Lockdown Learning Sessions. We chatted with him uh, about those sessions, kind of finding out what they were all about, how Dr. Pearson was connecting with uh, community members who had questions about a variety of things related to COVID-19. And Dr. Pearson has another session coming up next week on the 24th, so exactly one week from today. And this time it's talking about how to support uh, individuals within the the disabilities community right now because COVID-19 is having uh, a much different impact on that community than than others. And so joining me on the line right now to explain a bit more about this particular session is Dr. Pearson himself. Dr. Pearson, thanks so much for your time today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me back. It's great to chat with you. And, uh, you know, I think that these sessions are, are really helpful for people to have a way to connect with others and have their questions answered. Yeah, it's been it's been great to kind of step out of my comfort zone and and do some of this kind of more creative work and you know work in front of an audience. And I'm very happy that there's been you know a positive response and we seem to be helping a lot of people because that was the whole the whole point of all this. So it's been really neat to watch it grow, and I'm excited about the upcoming um, one we're going to do next week on our patients with disabilities. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the fifth of, of your of your series in these webisodes. And tell us a little bit more about how the focus will be different for this one. Okay, yeah. So, like I said, um, kind of the, the last time we spoke, it's really been an evolution. And this topic has kind of followed that trend and that um, was noticing in our patient population with, with disabilities. We treat a number of them with different cannabinoid-based medications that... It was just really interesting to hear the stories of how COVID-19 has affected them and, and their families, their caregivers. So this is what the focus is going to be all about because there's a number of things you, you don't think about with this population. Um, the fact that a lot of their programs are closed, things like respite or um, even if you think PPE, a lot of these patients require those things. So there's a, a big shortage for them as well. And then on the flip side, 
Um, we're going to be talking, as we always do, about self-care um, because a lot of these caregivers are taking on those roles that were normally filled by these different programs, even things like um, teaching a lot of the, the caregivers that their, their kiddos would have IEPs um, now have to do a lot of this work um, on their own. So we're kind of going to highlight where things were at during the lockdown, what we can kind of expect moving forward, and then just, again, providing some, some tips on self-care for, for the caregivers as well. That's so crucial. And it's something that we, we've been talking about even in our newsroom uh, as we've, you know, had conversations with people within the community and how there are a lot of challenges that, uh, you know, other people just don't consider. And this is why it's so important to have conversations like this, because it takes you out of your own perspective and opens your eyes to how other individuals are experiencing this time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you can kind of, again, if there is silver lining to any of this, um, the focus on self-care, but like you said, being able to look at other populations, see how it's affecting them. So if there's also some some added empathy that develops as a result of this, then I think that's something we could all use too. Absolutely, for sure. And and it's in some of the other conversations that I've had with uh, medical professionals here in our area, they've been doing studies about how individuals who have challenges related to uh, their mobility or other, you know, if they're immunocompromised in other ways, uh, they've really been delving into how uh, this, this whole pandemic and the illness itself uh, has really affected these communities and these populations of individuals, because there's a lot that we don't consider even just being able to go out to do uh, errands or uh, you know be able to get your groceries everything is is so much more difficult in the face of COVID-19 than it usually is. Yeah and we you know we had to do certain things when we were you know uncertain of of how severe COVID-19 was going to be and a lot of these um, things are going to have lasting implications so it's just it's just crucial to to kind of reset, kind of think about where we're at now, and I'm, I'm really kind of looking forward to kind of talking about the different, um, the different programs that are reopening to and what kind of normalization looks like. Again, we're not going back to the way it was, but there are some kind of key steps moving forward that hopefully these patients with disabilities have more access to some of the programs that they're used to getting. Absolutely. Yeah. As we are seeing, you know, things start to open up a little bit more. That is uh, great news to be able to share with people and, uh, you know, make sure that they they have access to those resources as soon as they can sign up for them or uh, whatever the case may be. Now, you're also going to be joined uh, by a special guest in this webisode, Jessica Moran, correct? That's correct. So um, Jess is um, kind of was my first first choice when thinking about who to bring on as a guest when we're talking about this patient population. So um, Jess is a disabilities advocate, and she's a mom um, with someone who has autism as well as her brother does. So she can relate on kind of many levels to the topic. So I'm excited to have her on and get get her take from, from that caregiver point of view. That'll be great. And that's the, the biggest thing too, right? For people who are in a situation like this and they, you know, want to hear from others who are in, in the same boat and able to, uh, you know, share resources and understand that they're not alone in how they're feeling right now, that there are lots of other people who, who understand. 
Yeah, that's you basically just nailed it right there, Jess. Like that's what um, one of the big things to this whole series was really reminding people that they're not alone. So these challenges that we just outlined with the disabled community um, and their caregivers, you know, the lack of, of different resources, PPE, more more stress at home, um, just hearing that from that conversation, knowing you can talk about it, knowing that there's other people out there that are going through the same thing um, is, is what we wanted to kind of create, that environment of you're not alone, and um, hopefully, again, we can provide some, some helpful resources uh, as well. Fantastic. And Dr. Pearson, uh, we, as we've said, it's, it's a, a week out. It's going to be next Wednesday at 7 in the evening. Uh, if people are interested in learning more or they want to sign up for this, uh, this session, how can they go about doing that? So they can go to my website, drblakepearson.org slash events and register there. Um, also, there's, there's links on all the social channels. Um, so at Dr. Blake Pearson on Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that's, that's really what the focus for the next week, too, is going to be, is another kind of vulnerable population um, and, and kind of raising awareness um, with, with respect to that community. Well, that's, that's the dementia community. And where all of this stems from is, again, seeing these patient populations in my practice um, and wanting to kind of shed some light on it and, and highlight that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's important uh, for people to, to know that there are still resources there and people who are, uh, you know, like yourself, who, who are, are wanting to help them as much as possible. So I'm, I'm not surprised that these webisodes are very popular because uh, it's, it's really important to be able to connect people like this. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that you'll have a good turnout for this one next week. Yep, here's, here's hoping so, and um, thanks again for having me on, Jess. No problem. Dr. Pearson, you take care, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Blake Pearson, founder of the Virtual Wellness Series and the Lockdown Learning Sessions. The next one is coming up next Wednesday, June 24th at 7 in the evening, and it's focusing on giving some resources and support to those within the disabilities community. And if you're interested in learning more or you want to sign up, as Dr. Pearson said, you can go to his website, www.drblakepearson.org forward slash events. We need to take a quick break for traffic and weather. That's coming up right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. Hope you're having a great day so far. As I said earlier, beautiful weather. It is a little steamy out there. It's warm, but that's okay. This is what we want at this time of year. Reminds me of getting outside, being active, swimming in the pool, maybe playing some beach volleyball, all sorts of fun activities that we can do in the summertime. And an organization that is very, very well-versed in keeping people active and social uh, during all seasons of the year, quite frankly, but especially in the summer, it's Forest City Sport and Social Club. Now, they've had to, or they did have to, put things kind of on the back burner because of COVID-19. But an email went out earlier this week. I got it in my inbox talking about how they are ramping up for a summer session. So we thought we should reach out and find out more about what's going on and how it will be running uh, as we move through phase two of COVID-19 reopening. And joining us on the line right now to explain a little bit more about that is Kyla Woodcock with Forest City Sport and Social Club. Kyla, thank you so much for your time today. 
Sure, Jess. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, it's great to chat with you. I know that, uh, you know, Forest City Sport and Social Club has uh, a great reputation in the city for, uh, you know, providing a lot of fun for people and great activities. And I'm sure that it was a bit of a downer for, for you guys there on, uh, in, the, on the, in the organization to not be able to do things for the spring. But now there are some plans moving forward for summer. Tell us about it. Uh, we uh, definitely were heartbroken to have to shut down temporarily because of COVID, but um, we're thrilled now to be able to come back uh, and do as much as is permitted with the phase two regulations and requirements. So we uh, opened registration on Monday of this week for a number of uh, summer activities that help us keep our promise to our community to stay physically distanced and meet the gathering limits, but still see our friends and have some fun and get some exercise out in the sun. Fantastic. And what kind of events or uh, I should say um, uh, activities? The activities, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are we looking at that that's allowed under the regulations? Yeah, the regulations right now for stage two say very clearly that no team sports are allowed um, for play. And so what we are offering right now is activities for individuals to get involved in. And in some cases, we'll uh, put those individuals into small groups that meet the gathering limit requirements. Um, But we are offering uh, some of the ones that our members have always known and loved, like our golf lessons and our golf rounds program. Uh, Our tennis lessons program is open for registration. Our outdoor yoga is also open for registration. And our hiking series is back. Uh, And we've also offered uh, new opportunities to get active with us in disc golf uh, and cross net, which is a volleyball meets four square kind of game for individuals. Oh, okay, so that's yeah. that's a pretty good selection of, of activities. I feel like people will be chomping at the bit to get out there and, and register. <laughs> yeah, we, we're feeling the energy and the excitement for sure. I think there's some pent-up demand for social time with friends and some physical activity outdoors. Uh, so registration so far is really strong for uh, these eight offerings that we have now. Uh, and we continue to add offerings just as they become uh, more permitted or as businesses that help us with some of these offerings, like facilities or uh, instructors, become more available and and back at uh, work, um, we'll open registration for more and more, uh, as much as we can. We normally have 35-plus offerings for the summer, um, and right now we've got the first eight out the door, ready to go. You know, it's not so long ago that there were there were zero activities available. So this having eight is is, is a great uh, update on that. And I know that people will be super excited about it because this is the time where we as Canadians try and really uh, make use of the sunshine and the beautiful weather and try to get out there as much as possible. Yes. Yeah, this is definitely the time where we, you know, normally would welcome more than 4,000 players uh, out to the fields and and diamonds and uh, the courts around the city. And we're anxious to get, uh, you know, up and going with all of those team sports that bring people back to those playing fields as soon as we can. But it's also so important to us to comply with the regulations um, and to keep our community and our members uh, really safe. So we're doing what we can when we can um, and, you know, not pushing the boundaries too, too far. Um, but just giving everybody something, right, that we can all get involved in and enjoy. 
For sure. And now if anyone is looking for more information on the activities that are available or if they want to, you know, take a look at, uh, you know, COVID-19 response stuff uh, as you move forward with this, where can they go to find that information? We've recently posted on our website, which is uh, www.fcssc.ca. We've posted our safe return to play guidelines, which help all of our members and members of our community uh, understand everything that FCSSC is doing to keep uh, our our players uh, and others in our community, our staff, our partners to keep everybody safe. Uh, And on that same website, again, fcssc.ca, we have uh, registration open. So all of the information for each offering is online. Uh, And then our um, our office is not open to the public yet. We're still working from home, but uh, we're available by email uh, and also by phone. So info at fcssc.ca if anybody has questions or they can call us at 519-439-GAME, which is 4263. Fantastic. Well, Kyla, this has been uh, a great chat. I'm so excited for you guys uh, to know that things are back up and running and people will be uh, so excited to be able to get out there with Forest City Sport and Social Club. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jess. I really appreciate it. We'll see you out there on the on the court. Absolutely. You take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Kyla Woodcock with Forest City Sport and Social Club. They are gearing up. For their modified summer season. Yeah, they've got eight activities that are ready to go. As Kylie was saying, their uh, registration is open on their website. Check it out if you're concerned about, uh, you know, COVID-19 safety restrictions. Well, they have a whole document on their website talking about how they're managing that. And uh, yeah, some really exciting offerings, it sounds like. And uh, I mean, what's better than being able to, to get outside, get some fresh air, some sunshine, do some activities and, you know, either make some new friends or sign up with your friends and still, you know, abide by the proper physical distancing that you have to and uh, still have a good time. Sounds like it'll be great. Good stuff. So again, Forest City Sport and Social Club, they are up and running with their registration for their summer session. So go check it out on their website. We are going to take a quick break for our four o'clock news package with Andrew Graham. When we come back, we are checking in with Andrew Enns from Leger. They've done some polling and they're looking at how Canadians feel about police departments, specifically their level of trust in police departments. And uh, some very interesting stats have come back from that survey. So that's coming up next on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. Hope you're having a good day so far. Before the break, I told you that we were going to be talking about results of a new poll done by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies. And it has to do with the level of trust Canadians have right now in police services. Of course, this survey was done with all of the discussions and protests against police brutality and anti-Black racism related to a number of cases, but most specifically uh, the killing of George Floyd last month in Minneapolis. And this has this survey has brought forward some really interesting results in terms of how Canadians feel right now. It also looked at how we feel about uh, extending CERB 
the uh, emergency benefit. Um, but the bulk of this survey, you know, was talking about how Canadians feel and where their trust level is with police services. And joining me on the line right now to discuss it further is Andrew Enns. He's the executive vice president of Leger's Winnipeg office. And uh, I'm going to start to say a, f- a frequent contributor to the show. We've had Andrew on a few times now. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Hi, yes, and uh, yeah, great to speak with you again this week. I hope your week is going well. Yeah, so far so good, and uh, all the better for having fantastic guests on like yourself, Andrew. And uh, this time we're, we're talking about polling data related to how Canadians feel about police departments. Tell us a little bit about what the survey found. Well, for sure, and, and thank you for asking uh, asking about the poll. We, we put in a, a few questions this week. Uh, on on how Canadians felt about policing. You might recall last week uh, we had some questions on sort of the, the question around systemic racism, and then as the events unfolded this week, policing came to the to the forefront, and we had a question in there with respect to a, just a trust question. It, it really, to what the question was, to what extent do you trust uh, police services? We had asked this before, and we found um, in this survey. Uh, conducted just a few days ago, that the level of trust had dropped uh, quite significantly from what we found when we previously asked this question on May 4th of this year. Um, It's down, we had 70% of Canadians, still a good number, uh, you know, still a good number of of Canadians say they trust their police services, but that was down from what we found May 4th, where it was 81%. So I think it's safe to to, to draw a conclusion here that the George Floyd and the events that flowed from that that uh, terrible event uh, did have an impact on on Canadians in terms of how they how they look at the police. Certainly, and I feel like just the coverage of all of the demonstrations and the actions uh, that took place in some American cities uh, in terms of interactions between police officers and peaceful demonstrators, I think probably would have uh, really contributed to that. Uh, And as well, we've had a number of cases uh, really come to light in the last number of weeks here in Canada of incidents uh, between police officers and members of the public as they respond to different calls. And I'm, I'm not necessarily surprised that there's been a drop, but that is a, a significant decrease. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I agree totally with what you said, and I was going to say, I mean, we're we're not uh, you know we're not immune here in Canada, and uh, you know we uh, obviously uh, um, you know the situations in some of the inner cities in the U.S., but certainly our indig- you know indigenous population. And to your point, there's been a couple of. Um, situations here in Canada that have, I think, uh, brought this issue to the forefront uh, for Canadians, uh, not just from a sense to look down south sometimes like, like we do, saying, boy, I'm sure glad I don't live down there. I think we're looking at ourselves a little bit too uh, on this one. For sure. And part of this survey also asked uh, respondents about their feelings on body cameras, correct? Yeah, we, we actually asked a, a, a series of uh, of, of um I guess call them police reforms. We had a number of different uh, uh, ideas that we, you know, we we've seen come up in the media and in other different uh, commentary. And, and one of them was body cameras. We also talked about hiring of visible minorities more, um, even sort of to the to the extreme of of maybe not even arming police when they're on foot patrol. And um, so, on a couple of these, there's some very clear support. One that you talked about, Jess, the wearing of body cameras. Uh, 90% of uh, of the people we spoke to in our poll 
said they would uh, they would feel that's a good measure. That's a good thing to do. Um, another good number, 87%, said it would be it would be really good if they increased the training hours uh, with respect to uh, their interactions with visible minorities and, and sort of some of those sensitivities. Uh, so those two measures look like there's really broad support for. Yeah, and I think that it's you know a positive thing to see uh, those those numbers where they are. Um, I know that some some uh, demonstrators and and activists, people who are very uh, you know involved in in discussions around police reforms, they've said that they are not necessarily in favor of the body cameras because they would rather see the funds that would go to purchasing them uh, go right. towards different social services. But certainly there are a number of uh, departments that across the country that are looking at that now. I think. Uh, Toronto's police department is is going to push forward with that faster uh, in the next little while after uh, events there in the last uh, few weeks as well. So it's it's certainly one of those uh, topics that will remain part of the discussion for some time to come. I think. Yeah, I would agree, and I agree. And you touched on the uh, you know you touched on one of the issues around it is the uh, is the cost factor. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I, I think it would probably uh, ultimately add to the police budget, where some would argue that the police budget should be uh, be reduced. Uh, you know, I do wonder, too, you, you may run into uh, some questions around even the issues of privacy um, as, as these things become a bit more commonplace. So, so there, there could be a few things that, that pop up around that, but, but certainly from at this stage of the game, uh, Canadians... Uh, you, this would solve. Uh, this would go a long way from to maybe uh, helping address the problems. Yeah, I think that uh, we'll see further discussions on that. Absolutely, uh, as they as as this issue continues to develop, and we have uh, more discussions coming down, which is obviously something that's very important to do. And I am sure that uh, you and the good folks there at Leger will continue to tap into what Canadians are thinking about those discussions as they unfold. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, for sure. Not a problem, Jess. Enjoy talking to you as always. And you take care. Have a good rest of your week, okay? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Andrew Enns. He is the executive vice president of Leger's Winnipeg office, talking about uh, the polling data that was collected by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies. Uh, It's a survey that noticed a pretty, pretty big drop in the number of Canadians who said that they trusted police somewhat or a lot in recent months. It was about, uh, I think, an 11-point decline between the beginning of May and then recently. So we have the latest on this on our website, 980cfpl.ca, as well as globalnews.ca, if you are looking for more details on that survey. We need to take a break for our traffic and weather update. When we come back, we are checking in with Steve Sauter from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority to find out everything we need to know about camping that's opening up pretty soon at area campgrounds. That's coming up on 980cfpl. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We were talking about how beautiful this weather is and how people want to get outside, get some exercise, some fresh air, just enjoy nature. And one of the classic ways of doing that, especially in Canada, is going camping. And we're lucky that we have quite a number of conservation areas in our region that allow for that overnight camping. 
And now, because we are into phase two of reopening here in the province of Ontario, those conservation areas are putting forward their plans for being able to do the overnight camping now that it's allowed. And so we have details of this on our website, 980cfpl.ca. But I wanted to check in with Steve Sauter from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority because this is, uh, you know, a, a big, a big undertaking to get everything up and ready and especially in the time of COVID-19 and he joins us on the line right now to share some information about those area conservation sites that are going to be open. Steve thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks Jess thanks very much. It's great to have you with us and especially to talk about something as positive as this. I know that uh, a lot of people look forward to going camping every year, every summer, uh, and it's a bit of a delayed season, but we're getting there, aren't we? We certainly are. And, you know, people have been very patient. I mean, we've had lots of comments through social media, you know, people saying they just can't wait to to get out camping. And, uh, you know, we've had our our campgrounds open now for the seasonal campers for a little while uh, because we were allowed to do that. And uh, now we're uh, now we're able to move into the next stage, which is opening up for uh, our overnight campers. And I know people are just thrilled about that. Absolutely. I'm just looking here at some of the uh, the information. So Fanshawe Conservation Area here in London is opening up on the 29th, which isn't too far away. That's right. Yeah. So we're phasing in uh, based on our resources and our ability to get everything done we need with the, the new protocols. Uh, so yes, Fanshawe is opening up on Monday, June 29th, and then followed by uh, Piddock and Wildwood Conservation Areas, which will be opening on uh, Monday, July 6th. Fantastic. That's, uh, you know, really, honestly, uh, when uh, the real summer camping season really feels like it's here. I know that a lot of people try and go out on May 2 for a weekend with limited success because of the weather. That wasn't happening this year because of COVID-19. Um, but now the weather is, is kind of perfect for it. It's like great timing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's just a couple of things that are different uh, this year that people will have to remember is that uh, we're taking reservations only online. So people can't just show up at the campground expecting to uh, get a spot. So I would encourage people to go to any one of our websites, uh, fanshawconservationarea.ca, pedocconservationarea.ca, or wildwoodconservationarea.ca, and and, uh, choose a site online. We're also limiting... Um, we're running at about 50% of our capacity uh, just so that we can keep the physical distancing between campsites as well. That's perfect. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, what people would notice to be different when they go this year versus, say, last year when there were no restrictions. Sure. So there there are a few changes, um, some things that, uh, that we, we can't uh, do right now. So our, our swimming pools will remain closed. Um, our group camping areas will be closed as well for the season, as well as the uh, um, the day-use pavilion rentals. A lot of people come and have uh, weddings at our, our, uh, camp- or our conservation areas, and unfortunately, we won't be able to do that this year. But uh, a lot of the other things um, are up and going. We're going to be getting our backcountry um, campsites open on uh, Monday, June 22nd at Wildwood Conservation Area. That's become very popular in the uh, in the last number of years, uh, as well as we are going to allow rentals for the canoe and kayaks only for backcountry uh, camping. We're unfortunately not going to be able to do our half-day or, or daily rentals of our, our canoes and kayaks, but uh, the things are coming along, and uh, we're even able to um, open up our um, swimming area and beach area on uh, Friday, June 19th. So that's coming right up, and that's at Wildwood Conservation Area. 
Fantastic. So there are lots of ways that people can get out there and enjoy the great outdoors at these conservation areas, as we're hearing here. I think people will be really heartened uh, to learn about this and know that they can still have a taste of what summer is usually like, uh, just with some, some minor modifications. That's right. Yeah, and absolutely. Our, our hiking and biking trails have seen uh, lots of activity. People are really looking for things to do, and those will continue to be available as well throughout the summer. Fantastic. Well, Steve, I'm so glad that we've had a chance to chat about this and, and get people up to date on what's going on there at the Conservation Authority. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that this is able to go forward. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you had time for us today to chat about it. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Jess. You take care. All the best. Bye now. Bye-bye. That's Steve Sauter with the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority talking about nightly camping. It's coming back. That's right. So Fanshawe Conservation Area will be opening up for nightly camping on the 29th of June and Pittock and Wildwood Conservation Areas. Pittock is in Woodstock, Wildwood's in St. Mary's. They are opening up for their nightly camping on July the 6th. And once again, we have all of this information posted on our website, 980cfpl.ca. And for anyone who's heading out to do camping, enjoy yourselves. It's been a long time since I've gone camping. It is fun, but uh, I definitely like the comforts of home. I like plumbing. I really do. But camping is a lot of fun, especially if you're just going, say, for like a few nights or something. That's totally great. Sit around a fire, have some, some beverages, have laughs and jokes with whoever you're going with. In this case, if you're going for nightly camping, it would have to be people in your bubble, in your social circle. You got to be careful. Anyway. That's the latest from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. And like I said, the details are on our website, 980cfpl.ca. We are going to take a break for our 4.30 news package with Andrew Graham. He's got some uh, breaking news from the United Nations coming up. That's in your news package right now on 980cfpl. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. So I told you earlier on in the program when I was kind of teeing up what we'd be talking about today, that there's a big story about the UK and it has to do with their energy consumption. Yeah. Saw this article last night and I was I was kind of floored by it because this story from businessinsider.com, says that the UK has gone two months without burning coal, the longest period since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. That's like 230 years ago. <laughs> That's a long time, considering how dependent our societies are upon fossil fuels and uh, coal burning, in, still in some countries, obviously, I was a bit floored by that. And I thought, how neat is that? So I wanted to learn a little bit more about just how important a moment this is. And so I reached out to Dr. Christine, Christina, excuse me, Hoika. She's an associate professor in sustainable energy economics and in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. She joins me on the line now. Dr. Hoika, thank you so much for your time. Hello, it's great to be here. I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with you about this, to kind of learn more about just how significant it is, because in my mind, this is a pretty big watershed moment. Uh, is it the same for you? How, are you are you surprised by it? 
Um, absolutely, it's a watershed moment. Um, out of all of the energy sources that we can use for electricity production, coal emits the most carbon emissions and also toxics like mercury pollution. So coal is really highly polluting. Um, I was actually part of developing the coal cessation regulations in Ontario and in helping Ontario to phase out coal. So I'm really excited to see the same kind of coal phase-out happening in Britain and the large increase in the use of renewable energy. Um, whether I'm surprised by uh, whether I'm surprised that Britain has reached this phase-out and for this long amount of time, I'm actually not. Um, the UK has had supportive policies in place, such as support for renewable energy, and they've also had levies on carbon that make it less profitable to run coal. So over the last few years, the cost of renewables has, have also dropped dramatically and continue to drop. And that also encourages renewable energy supply. Fantastic. And speaking of renewable energy, um, I wanted to ask you about how Britain has been meeting its energy needs during this time. And, uh, you know, how much better for the environment are these methods than, you know, previously what they were doing? Yeah, so um, one thing that's different about this time period right now is that the COVID-19 pandemic has reduced the amount of industrial and economic activity. So energy demand has reduced significantly. And this has happened in most places, um, including in, in Britain and also here in Ontario. Um, at the same time, uh, I, was, I was looking this up, there were also weather conditions that increased solar and wind power production over this, this time frame. And um, the rest of the power was provided by nuclear power and natural gas. Um, natural gas is a fossil fuel that produces half the carbon emissions of coal, so that's still really important to address. But renewables are, uh, did play a big role in this. Um, the amount of renewables that have powered uh, Britain's electricity system has increased dramatically over the last few years. Um, and in 2019, it was close to 38%. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, and it's it's. I don't want to get too ahead of myself here because I have I have another question about uh, moving forward in the future with uh, yeah. with these renewable uh, sources of energy. But do you think that you know Britain will be able to carry on not using coal as things start to ramp back up with the economy and and the restrictions kind of ease related to COVID nineteen? Um. Yeah, and I, I, I do think, you know, it will, it will depend on how quickly um, the economy reopens and, um, and how much more uh, energy demand comes online. Um, but in terms of the next few years and their commitment to phase out coal by 2024, um, it is, it's definitely possible. So one of the really great things about this moment um, is that it's showing the reliability of renewable energy and our confidence in renewables can grow. And so if you keep in mind that we also have falling renewable energy costs, uh, this may trigger more demand for renewable energy and more renewable energy production. So that's a really big positive for renewable energy. Um, we also know that there has been significant progress in the past few years in dramatically reducing coal use in Britain. And they also have a commitment in place uh, to phase out coal by 2024. And they've combined this with supportive policies to uh, reduce coal 
and also to encourage renewables. Um, and because of the alignment of those policies and the falling costs of renewables, it's definitely achievable to um, reduce reliance on coal and also to completely phase it out uh, relatively soon. Um, and in fact, their coal phase-out is on a similar timeline to Ontario's own coal phase-out. And Ontario also had a government commitment and had a large push for energy co- conservation and renewable energy. I think that's awesome. And, and, and further to your point about uh, showing that this is possible, this is uh, obviously not under the circumstances that we would want to have this type of uh, two-month gap. We would prefer not to be in a global pandemic and, and have all the things that have gone along with it. But this is, you know, a prime example of this can happen. This is doable. These technologies do work and do support our energy needs. Absolutely. Um, And what we're finding, you know, overall and globally is that renewables uh, use and the share of renewables on electricity grids and in energy systems is growing. Our confidence in them is growing. Um, We're learning more and more about how to integrate those renewables and uh, meet our energy needs. And a big part of that is around investment in a range of policies and in flexibility of grids. Um, And these are definitely, these types of uh, policies and flexibility will also support um, other ways of decarbonizing. So, for example, electric vehicles that would decarbonize the transportation sector in the future. So, yeah, this is a really big step. Um, It is under unfortunate circumstances. But on the other hand, we are really seeing in this moment um, that renewables can really provide a very large proportion of energy on an electricity grid as large as that of Britain's. It's pretty amazing. And I'm so glad that we've had a chance to speak with you, Dr. Hoika, about this and, and get some more insight and context to it. Thank you so much for your time today. I know it's, it's a busy day for you, and uh, I really appreciate you taking time out to chat with me. Thanks for having me. You have a good day. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Christina Hoika. She's an associate professor in sustainable energy economics at the in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University, giving us some context on uh, the news out of the UK that they've gone two months without burning coal. And it's the longest stretch that they've done that since the start of the Industrial Revolution 230 years ago. That is a long time. So certainly does have some implications for moving forward with phasing out coal power. As uh, Dr. Hoika was saying, Britain has a plan to completely phase it out by 2024, which is not dissimilar to Ontario's plan to do the same. And it just shows that alternative sources of energy, primarily renewables, are able to carry a big burden of power generation. Very interesting. We are going to take a quick break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we are going to learn about the origin story, if you will, of one of the most recognizable uh, Canadian segments on TV. People for for a, a lot of years have heard the body break jingle. They have listened to the tips from Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod about how to stay stay fit and have fun and We are learning this week, we have learned this week, about how this 
segment and this this creation body break came to be and Hal Johnson put out a, a YouTube video about that talking about the the founding of it and it really was in direct response to racism. So Hal is going to join us on the air to talk about this and explain the creation of body break and just how how important it is to show that you know it, it itself is is part of the fight against systemic racism specifically in media in Canada. So that discussion is coming up next. Hal Johnson on the Afternoon Show on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your Afternoon Show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I tell you, growing up here in Canada, both when I was much younger living in Montreal and also here in Ontario as I grew up through the rest of my childhood and teens, a common thing that you would hear on TV is the jingle for body break. And up would pop Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod with great tips on staying active and healthy and, you know, some good nutrition tips, just really manageable and easy things to do on the day to day. And I think for most people, if you mention body break, the jingle immediately comes to mind just like that. And people have very fond memories of those segments. It's a part of of, of growing up in Canada. I know that it was for me uh, as those segments ran, you know, right through the 90s. And even now we see Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod. It's, it, there's a comfort in seeing them on 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 our screens and hearing what they have to say. And, uh, you know, they they bring a lot of great advice to people. But did you know the story of how Body Break began? And did you know that not only have Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod been instrumental in bringing good health advice and tips to Canadians, they also fought back against systemic racism by putting together Body Break. And Hal Johnson put out a a YouTube video the other day explaining this story, and I was floored by it. And I know that it's it's had a lot of discussions across the country as a result of of that video coming out. And Hal Johnson has graciously come on the show right now. He's on the line. Hal, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor to chat with you. I have to say, I'm a little starstruck right now. <laughs> don't, don't be. I'm just an average guy with an average life. <laughs> well, I have to say that what you've done with with Body Break and even in its creation is uh, above average. And uh, tell us if you if if you about how this all came together because I think more people need to hear the story of this. Well, it's uh, there's kind of many layers to it, um, but it's it really is about. You know, just believing in yourself, believing in the idea and doing it. But it was sparked by incidents that occurred that I realized that, you know, I've got to make a change. Firstly, when I was, uh, when I was young, um, when I was 10 years old, I was watching the Masters. I'd been given an old nine iron and I went across the street to the uh, local high school and I hit the, a bucket of balls back and forth and I became pretty good. And uh, I was doing that constantly. And then I was then I watched the Masters that next year, and I, all I saw on the golf course were caddies were black and the golfers were white. So for for a couple of years until we had our father son um, golf tournament, uh, a hockey team, I, I asked my dad as we're going to, going to the golf course, are we allowed on the course? Because I didn't think black people were allowed to play on the golf course. I thought they were just caddies. Um, so it was ingrained in me as a kid 
that I didn't see myself reflective in that. And then when I was at the, um, uh, when I was at, uh, I was in, fast forward to 1988, I was doing a commercial at the Woodbine Racetrack, and there was a white girl, uh, were three actors, uh, and I was, uh, there was a white girl next to me and a white guy uh, next to her on the other side. And the assistant director went to the director and whispered something, and then she, and then, then the director uh, had the white girl and guy change positions. And I asked the assistant director after, at lunch, I said, well, why did you have to change positions, have him change positions? And he said, well, he kind of laughing, well, you know, the client didn't want anybody to misconstrue that you were with her, you know, because if your guys could be next together and didn't, didn't want that. And that was June 8th of 1988, and that was the day that the idea was born. Um, I just said, you know what, enough's enough. Let's do our let's do our own thing. Let's try to show that we can all live, work, and play together. And so, that was really the the impetus. That was the that was the fuel that was put on the fire. And uh, and from that day on, um, I went home and I said, Did you, I was supposed to go to San Diego that day, uh, that evening, and Joanne was going to take me to the airport. And I said to her, I said, you know, I'm. I'm not going to go. I'm going to, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stick this out and really run with this, but this idea, we hadn't had a name of the show yet. And I said, if I leave, it'll all fizzle. So let's, I'm going to stay and, and do it. And basically within six to seven weeks without any TV production, we produced our pilot. I took it around to 40, 42 different show, um, TV stations and sponsors, a lot of sponsors. They all said no. And then uh, I went to TSN, and TSN said they loved it. They love it, and they'd like to put it on uh, on on air. But because I'm black and Joanne's white, they they couldn't put it on air uh, unless the actor was changed. And and I go, well, it's my show, so I'm not ch- change, I'm not going to be changed. And so I went home, and that day I asked Joanne. I said, you know, who who does the uh, fitness for the government? And she said, participation. And I said, I called them, and within about five weeks, we had a contract to do uh, um, six pilot episodes with participation and then they, it grew to 65 episodes with them and and we were um, on the air you know uh, 1500 times to 1800 times a week you know really for about 20 years and then uh, at, at that rate it was uh, phenomenal um, friends have told me we were kind of YouTube before there was YouTube yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. And like to have all of that come together. And I, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to, you know, find the way forward and uh, that participation was there to, uh, you know, partner with you and, and make this a reality because had had it not come together, we would have been deprived of, of, of such a, a fantastic initiative that you've worked so hard and fostered along with Joanne over the years. And this is, it, it's scary to me to think that there are so many other people who have been held back systemically because of those barriers that are in place. Yeah, they are. And, and I think what I, what I would hope, I, you know, this video that I did was really, uh, was not thought out. It was, it was literally um, just, I, I, I was getting a lot of phone calls from friends and discussing over the last couple of weeks, hey, you know, white friends saying, what can I do? I, I feel emotional about stuff and I don't know, I feel uncomfortable, but I, I want to say something. I want to do something. I want to help. And I just said to them, listen, just listen. And, and, and they said, yeah, I just, just have to listen. And so I kind of felt that Canada's ready to listen. And I thought, you know, I don't know what to say. I don't know what's right. I don't know. 
I don't want to offend anybody. Um, I don't want to. I don't want anybody to get an idea. I'm mad or bitter. I'm not in any way. Um, and and even that the gentleman at TSN, I, I who. Who, uh, who rejected us and and I and was ironic TSM became our biggest supporter played body break more than any other I went on the amazing race at CTV I've uh, uh, been on I uh, was on off the record over a hundred times on on TSN so I mean I have no animosity or bitterness towards TSN so at all and um, and it but what I would ask you know companies I would ask every company media companies ad ad companies when you're in a meeting, look around in your room. Look around, and do you see someone with a disability? Do you see someone of different ethnic origin than yourself? And if not, then you're not getting their perspective on life. And that's really what Body Break was about. Because if you go on our YouTube channel, and we're, we're loading up, right now we're loading up a lot of the 300 Body Break episodes that we have, you will see in virtually every Body Break episode, um, someone of different ethnicity um you'll see someone with a disability um you know in a sense we'll put things in like uh someone will be doing sign language and they'll be kind of in the background in the in a corner you won't see it if you you don't have that disability but i can guarantee you someone who's hearing impaired will see that person chills will go through them they'll be they'll see they'll see themselves and they'll go I belong. I'm part of the landscape. And uh, that's what I, as a 10-year-old kid, I didn't see myself. And, and that's, what re that's really what Body Break um, was set out to accomplish. Doing it through fitness, because we all want to be healthy, but giving you a spoonful of, um, of, of b bringing people together and understanding we're all the same, and you didn't even know you're taking that medicine for all these years. Absolutely. And I love it. That's It's fantastic. That's how you change hearts and minds, right, is is having uh, those types of conversations and that representation that is there. And, and a conversation that I'm going to have later on this afternoon is talking about uh, reading materials and education materials for little ones now to start teaching them the importance of inclusivity and diversity and fighting back against racism. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's fantastic to hear the story of, of how this came about. About and to know that it's it's obviously been so wildly successful that uh, you know you're you're Canadian icons and you've done such amazing work and I'm I'm so grateful not only for the work you've done but the fact that you've taken time out of your day to chat with me about it Hal I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been it's been my pleasure. You take good care of yourself and uh, please stay safe and be well. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Hal Johnson of Body Break talking about how Body Break came to be, how it was a direct response and pushback against systemic racism, how Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod wanted to put this program out there. They were told no because they didn't want to have a white woman and a, and a, and a black man together and have people they thought the executive didn't think that Canadians were ready for an interracial couple. And they went around that system and they found a way through. And a lot of people are learning a lot in the last few weeks. And I'm I'm so glad for it. And again, I can't express enough my thanks to Hal Johnson for uh, chatting with me this afternoon about this story and the importance of what they've done with Body Break. Changing hearts and minds. 
We need to take a break. We are we are over time here. We got to go to the five o'clock news with Andrew Graham. That's up right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I came across a story yesterday and it said the Earth's magnetic field is weakening and scientists don't know why. This is on uh, CTV National News, story out of Toronto. It has to do with a mysterious anomaly causing the Earth's magnetic field to weaken between South America and Africa. Scientists don't know why. So what does that mean? Our magnetic field is weakening. What does it mean, first of all? And then also, what, how might it impact the world and how we do things? It's kind of intense. It can kind of set off alarm bells. So I thought, let's learn about this a little bit more and try to understand it better. And joining us now on the line to do just that is Dr. Phil McCausland. He's the director of the Western Paleomagnetic and Petrophysical Laboratory and also an adjunct professor in Western's Department of Earth Sciences. Dr. McCausland, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, no problems. Happy to talk about this. Oh, it's it's fascinating to me because I I just I don't have a really great understanding of uh of science. I know the basics, but this certainly uh, sounds a little bit intimidating. And I thought, well, what does it what does it really mean for our our magnetic field to be weakening? So uh, we we've come to an expert. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what is the magnetic field and and what does it do for our world? What what is it? What's what's its purpose? Okay, well, the uh, Earth as a planet has uh, the ability to generate a magnetic field. And uh, anybody who's ever played with a compass um, will know what that looks like. Basically, the compass needle finds uh, the magnetic north for us very nicely. And uh, it's basically responding to the, the ambient magnetic field all around us generated by the Earth's core. Um, and the Earth has done this for billions of years. So it's, uh, it's sort of, it's one of those features of the Earth that's actually one of the oldest uh, scientific discoveries going back, you know, something like 500, 600 years, is a description of the Earth's magnetic field. So it's, it's a pretty neat thing that the Earth does. Um, as for what it does for us, uh, a very helpful thing the Earth's field does for us, aside from, you know, navigation, um, which was recognized by the Chinese and various other ancient civilizations. Um, it also very critically, and this is part of the story that you're responding to, it very critically stands off uh, charged particles, ionized particles from the sun and solar radiation. So if you have ever seen, uh, I guess almost everybody has seen aurora in the uh, northern skies for us or in the southern hemisphere, uh, aurora, in the skies near the poles of the Earth, those are charged particles coming barreling into the Earth's atmosphere and making all of those nice colors. And that's guided by the Earth's magnetic field lines. So the field, if you kind of imagine a bar magnet, you have these hoop lines going in, running through the center of the Earth and then out either pole. And then it's a big loop going out around. So basically what the field does is it stands off the, the charged particles from, from the solar wind and basically keeps us from having all sorts of things happen to us, like more UV radiation and more genetic mutations and so on. So when the field declines, um, it, you know, that potentially is a problem. 
That's right. And it, it leads us to the discussion of, of what it means to have this this weakening of it um, mm-hmm. and, and what effects we might see from that. Um, okay, uh, so what I should really do is put this in a bit of context uh, in that, that, you know, that's a new story now, partly because of the European Space Agency has uh, three satellites orbiting that have been up there for a while that carry magnetometers. And it's a very much more precise way of measuring this than we've had in orbit before. And they've detected changes over time. Um, but the changes uh, that they're talking about um, in broader aspect, have been seen before, in fact, in, in global records that have been taken over the last 200 years. Just, you know, ships sailing have magnetometers on board and make measurements as well. Um, and so the decline has been happening over quite a while. So that takes some of the, you know, the immediacy and direness out of the story right <laughs> now because it's been seen for a while. Um, but the anomaly is an interesting one in that it's a particular region on the Earth's uh, surface and in the uh, ionosphere over the Earth's surface that has a low intensity. And it's been known uh, basically really since the satellite age started in the late 50s into the 60s um, over uh, basically southern Brazil and the South Atlantic. It's called the South Atlantic Anomaly. And it's a region where the Earth's magnetic field is particularly low intensity. It's, it's very interesting to, to think of it this way, and, and I'm glad that you pointed out that it's been, uh, you know, uh, uh, monitored over time, that mm-hmm. this is something that's happened. Because in that article that I was reading, it said that um, over the span of, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, there is, uh, you know, the idea that the that the magnetic field kind of flips or it mm-hmm. reverses. And it, I, I, it takes a really long time to, to know when that is going to happen, and there's really no direct timeline on when it will. That's right. Yeah. Uh, actually, nobody would be able to give you a straight answer on uh, are we going through a magnetic field reversal? Um, that's actually not, and we won't know, honestly, within our lifetimes anyway. Um, but So it's not a, immediate in the sense of, you know, seen in some Hollywood movies, for instance, where the reversal happens and suddenly, you know, <laughs> all heck breaks loose, you know. <laughs> uh, it's not quite like that, but in in geological terms, um, you know, the reversals happen on average every 500 to 1,000 years or so. And when they do happen, they do happen over the span of maybe hundreds of years to 1,000 years. And while the reversal is happening, we would go through some period where we would have low patches you know, start to appear in various places on the Earth's surface or in above this Earth's surface. And we'd end up having something similar, perhaps, to what we're seeing today. But it would develop over, you know, lifetimes. You know, several human lifetimes, we would have a number of these different patches show up. And then eventually, uh, the field would reverse, perhaps, over hundreds to a thousand to several thousand years. But during that period... Um, the Earth's surface would encounter more of the radiation uh, from the sun. These charged particles from the sun would start to interact more with the Earth's surface, as they currently do in the polar regions on the Earth already. So it's it's not like we don't see this. It's just not usually seen over much of the Earth's surface. So we would have times when we have a reversal where we would have more exposure. Uh, so maybe that's in our future over the next couple of hundred years or, or several hundred years, I don't know. But this this anomaly has been noted going back in ship's logs even, it, but it really came, it was really discovered 
uh, when the first satellites went up after Sputnik in 1957, a number of satellites went up and started passing through this region and got hit by uh, uh, charged particles hmm. and were damaged by it. And so initially it was quite a mystery in the, in the satellite industry, and they figured out what it was. It was the because the Earth's field was, was weaker in that region over South America and the Atlantic. So it's, you know, this is something that it's, it's of great scientific interest, and it's also something that potentially, you know, given several generations, may become a concern to us if the Earth actually does go into reversal. It makes some difference for our surface conditions, perhaps. Although, you know, it won't end life as we know it or anything like that. But, you know, it, it certainly it's an, it would be an added concern. Um, but uh, for right now, I mean, you see stories like that come across, and it's like, oh, boy, what next? You know, <laughs> all, all sorts of things are already happening that are very uncertain. Um, but this one, happily, is not so dire as, as that, perhaps. But it is, nevertheless, really interesting. And I should say, stress, that this is unknown. We don't really know why the Earth's field behaves in this way. It's kind of, The Earth's magnetic field is one of the great mysteries, actually. Well, certainly you have, you know, in this chat, uh, shed some light on it and explained uh, fantastically uh, just what's kind of going on right now and what we do know. And for that, Dr. McCausland, I thank you very, very much for your time today. Oh, you're quite welcome, Jess. This has been a great chat. Thank you so yeah. much. You stay well, okay? Yeah, you too. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. That's Dr. Phil McCausland, director of the Western Paleomagnetic and Petrophysical Laboratory, also an adjunct professor in Western's Department of Earth Sciences. That was a fascinating chat. We need to take a break for our traffic and weather. When we come back, we are checking in with Grant Maltman, curator of Banting House National Historic Site right here in London, talking about a fundraising effort uh, to repair some vandalism that took place at Banting House just a few days ago, and also a really big donation that's been made to that fund. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. A couple of days ago, we got word that someone had vandalized the Flame of Hope at Banting House here in London. Of course, Banting House has been recognized as uh, the birthplace of insulin because it's where Sir Frederick Banting came up with the idea for insulin, which is, of course, life-saving treatment for diabetes. And the Flame of Hope was first lit by Queen Elizabeth, like the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth's mum, many, many years ago on a trip to London. And it has burned ever since. And then over the weekend, vandals managed to damage the monument out front of Banting House and snuffed out the flame which is, of course, extremely upsetting for a number of reasons. But there is some good news to share with you this afternoon, and that is where Grant Maltman comes in. Grant is the curator of Banting House, and he joins me on the line now. Grant, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, well, thanks for the call, Jess. It's great to chat with you and tell us a little bit about uh, where we stand here, because there's uh, some exciting news when it comes to uh, moving forward with fixing the damage that was done. Well, I guess... Um the easiest, the two catchphrases we're using is uh, let's make some lemonade out of this lemon and we're overwhelmed. Uh, 
the flame of hope, as you mentioned, is a symbol of hope for 415 plus million people around the world affected by diabetes. And it sounded like you were one of our volunteer guides in the way you described uh, its importance and, and the stor- background behind it. Um, and so since 1989, it has been burning for the uh, four people affected by diabetes. And when it was vandalized on Saturday night, uh, we weren't sure what we're to do. Like every other charity with a COVID shutdown, we're facing financial challenges. Uh, we've been closed since March 13th. And we're trying to figure out what we're going to do and what kind of campaign, what we should be doing. And out of the blue, I got a call yesterday evening from Shmuel Fari at home, something I wasn't expecting at all. No doubt. And, uh, you know, calls like that are, are, are a little bit rare when they're at home, especially uh, after hours. And what was what was the news that uh, Mr. Farhi shared with you? Oh, well, uh, Mr. Farhi, as, as you know, is always uh, to the point. Uh, and he just expressed to me his, his outrage and sadness and his frustration that such a well-known London and, and indeed international art, uh, landmark would have been vandalized. And he said, I know you're getting ready to start a campaign, and I would like to help uh, make a donation towards that to help with uh, restoring the flame, to get it lit again, as well as to help support some of the additional security measures that the public is asking for. Fantastic. That is a beautiful gesture. And especially at a time like this, as you said, Grant, when, uh, you know, cash is 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 tight right now because we are in the middle of a pandemic and people can't necessarily donate the way they usually would. So this kind of a, a shot in the arm uh, financially is a big deal. Oh, it sure was. And we spoke for about 20 minutes and, he, you know, he, he was so kind speaking to what the symbol means as, a, as to the community, as a piece of public art, as a symbol in the battle against diabetes. And uh, for him to just to call out of the blue, uh, he had a, a conversation with Peter Fragascados, our local MP, who's also been a very strong supporter of the museum. Uh, and he just, I had to do something. And, you know, in the way he does, can I help? As if I was going to hang up the phone on him. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was very generous and very kind. That's wonderful. And, and I don't know if you're at liberty to say uh, the amount of the donation or, uh, you know, obviously it, every little bit is going to be helpful. Oh, every, every little bit uh, is, is true. Every little bit counts. Uh, we'd prefer to, to keep it. And I, I can't say it was a significant gift and it was a real shot in the arm for us. But I, I think at, at this point, uh, we would both prefer just to, to keep that, that quiet understandable. Uh, and moving forward then, you mentioned that there is an overall fundraiser that's that's going to be started. That's what Mr. Farhi had heard about and said he wanted to contribute to. Tell us a little bit about that effort. Well, it's a $20,000 Rekindle the Flame, and you can find it uh, on our uh, social media posts at Banning House NHS, and we have a link there where people can go and donate and, and for a tax receipt as well. And what this is, uh, as I said, the support has been overwhelming uh, from around the world. People are saying, do you have cameras? Would you like a camera? Can we help get cameras? Uh, things like that. We have a uh, security box that actually operates the flame. is too close to the monument, and people are using that to, to make a jump at the flame, so we need to get that moved. So any gift that comes in will help the, the overall security so we can ensure that this doesn't happen again. Absolutely. And in terms of the damage to the monument itself, um, is that, you know, how, how extensive was it, what was done? We're, we're still in the process of assess, assessing. Uh, we had to do some repairs to the flame in the past, and so we're estimating that alone will 
be in the sort of the two thousand dollar range, uh, but something that you think would wouldn't be a big issue, but to move the the box that that houses the natural gas and our electric burner and restarter mechanism is going to be in that five to to seven thousand dollar range, and there was also some damage to the globe and and security cameras. So the the costs escalate pretty quick, and it's just something we could could never have budgeted for, uh, even if COVID had come into place. So. The fact that the public is stepping up and offering to help is is really turning a, a really big negative into a, into a, an extreme positive, and for that we're grateful. Absolutely. Well, Grant, I'm grateful to have had the chance to chat with you this afternoon to learn more about what's going on and help spread the word about Rekindle the Flame and the campaign to uh, raise that that cash to make sure that things are are new and improved and, and get back to uh, you know exactly how they were, but even better. Oh, I really appreciate your time, Jess, and helping us get the message out. It it really is uh, something we're very grateful for. Our absolute pleasure. Grant, you stay well, and thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Grant Maltman, curator of Banting House National Historic Site right here in London, talking about the Rekindle the Flame campaign. That's a fundraiser that they have started to try and, uh, you know, crowdsource this cash to get the the flame back in business after it was vandalized over the weekend. And a very generous contribution by Shmuel Fari, uh, as Grant was telling us about as well. We need to take a break for our 5.30 News with Andrew Graham. That's coming up right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on this Wednesday the 17th of June, we've been talking a lot about how to move forward with discussions of the importance of fighting back against racism, especially anti-Black racism and systemic racism, and also about the importance of having honest and age-appropriate discussions with kids. And how crucial it is for parents to start addressing the issues that we see day to day, day in, day out with their little ones so that they have a good understanding of the responsibility that we all have to fight back against racism. And we've seen a lot of posts online about how to maybe have those conversations and also ways that parents can kind of start to have those chats with their little ones. And quite often, it really comes down to introducing reading material to them. And of course, if you're going to talk about children's reading material here in London, a great place to go to for some expert advice is, of course, the London Public Library. And joining me on the line right now is Michael Ciccone, the CEO of the London Public Library. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to chat with you once again. The last time was uh, a little earlier on, a a few months ago, but I'm glad to have a chance to uh, talk with you about this in particular because it's so important for uh, little ones to be presented with uh, reading material that is diverse and is inclusive, and the library is the perfect place to go for that. Yeah, I mean, at London Public Library, I mean, we we encourage all of our patrons uh, to make an effort to seek out the diverse perspectives 
and we have a broad collection of resources that address the issue of racism and the experiences of racialized communities. I, I think much of this starts with the parents themselves. Uh, an important factor that we take into account when selecting materials, whether it be children's material, teen, adult, uh, for our collection and promoting titles is the concept of own voices, uh, fiction, nonfiction, documentaries, even feature films that tell stories from the perspective of the persons affected by anti-racism. Uh, for, for just for an instance, uh, currently we honor, <coughs> excuse me, LPL Recommends page. We have a list of books originally created for Black History Month in February and have been recommended by black authors, scholars, and artists. We also have a list representing indigenous voices, uh, LGBTQ plus voices, and so on. And the books range in, uh, in, in age level appropriateness. I think for parents, there exists the opportunity to experience these perspectives with the child, uh, with, with a children's book, or learn about the issues themselves and share or explain those perspectives. And you can find those lists at uh, lpl.ca slash lplrecommends. That's fantastic. And yeah, the reading so often is, uh, you know, just a way to experience things through a different perspective. It takes you out of your own view of a situation and allows you to build empathy and understanding of how other individuals uh, experience the world. Absolutely. It, can, it, it really can be life-changing, life-altering, reading a, a book uh, such as that. I I, my own personal favorite is, is uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, <coughs> excuse me, God by Zora Neale Hurston, which I read, I think, when I was uh, about 30 years old, and it really did give me a, a, a wholly different perspective uh, on, on the African-American experience in the United States uh, at the time. Um, we also have created a list of e-books, speaking of the U.S., uh, created a list of e-books and e-audiobooks selected from the, the Black Liberation Reading List of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. Um, and the list itself was inspired by recent events in the U.S. Uh, we also have a, a, a few digital media providers, Canopy and Hoopla, have great selection of documentaries depicting the lives of racialized persons and communities. And uh, most of these titles have been part of our collection for some time, and, but this is incredibly encouraging that so many of them now are in high demand with long hold lists. That this is an issue we generally deal with, uh, mostly with uh, reserving best-selling authors and popular pe uh, feature films. Uh, so this is certainly reflective of the thinking of Londoners right now. It tells us they're seeking an understanding of the issues. I've worked at public libraries for 27 years. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, and by the way, rest assured, we will be purchasing more copies of these titles to cut down on the waiting list periods. That's fantastic. What what heartening news that is uh, to hear that the demand is so high that there are long waiting lists. I mean, and as you said, you're you're looking to buy more copies, which is uh, fantastic, so that people don't have to wait too long. But I, I'm so so glad to to hear that because uh, so much of the discussion that we've had in the last several weeks is is focused on making sure we move forward with this movement because it can't just be uh, uh, you know uh, just posts on social media. We have to continue to have discussions and do that work of educating ourselves uh, to, uh, you know, make sure that we are better informed of, of what, uh, you know, BIPOC communities are going through right now. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, and, and if there's any way the library can support that, that we will. And if there's, there's gaps, um, please, uh, we encourage people to, to uh, point them out to us. 
And I think that my next uh, question kind of lends nicely to uh, what we've been talking about, whereas, uh, you know, as we move into phase two of the reopening after, as we move through COVID-19, certainly we're not out of the woods yet, uh, but the library is starting to expand uh, its its services to the community at this point. And so if you have some items on hold uh, that you are, you know, looking to, to pick up, if they become available, uh, there are some options for that now. Yes, and, and just, just a reminder to everybody that our digital collections are there all the time for people to use from homes and, and uh, that they've been getting pretty heavy use during this time period. But we are now open um, for pickup uh, outside of uh, 10 of our locations occasionally, uh, uh, currently. Uh, and uh, that basically means that uh, we're, we're, the, the buildings themselves are still closed to the public, but we are allowing people to place holds and, and come in and pick up their materials. They can either do that through our catalog or they can call uh, um, our look uh, a number and I'm um, sorry I just I lost the number oh it's uh, 519-661-4600 and and they can um, reserve books through that phone number uh, you can find more information about that on our website uh, next Monday uh, June 22nd we are going to launch pickup service at three more branches the central branch uh, the Cherry Hill branch and the Sherwood branch uh, also at the Central Library, because of the size of our facility and the, the, the massive first floor that we have, uh, we'll be piloting a service that would provide limited access to public computers in a way that respects safety and distancing protocols. Uh, we'll have more details about this service as the data <coughs> draws nearer. Uh, otherwise, uh, again, as I mentioned, all our buildings uh, remain closed to the public at this time. We are going to be continually looking at what it is and uh, we can and cannot do a lot of that has to do with the, the limitations of the size of the building and, and, and so on and so forth and capacity. Well, that's very interesting. And I'm, I'm sure we will check back in with you about that uh, as you get closer to, to launching that uh, that service, because uh, people will be very interested in, in learning how to take advantage of that and, and get in there and uh, be able to use the computers in that safe fashion, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, that on Saturday we're launching a, a new online reading program designed for children's teens and this year adults as well. Uh, if you go to lpl.ca slash summer, you can register there. You earn badges, try challenging activities, and you have a chance to win some great prizes as well. That's fantastic. Who doesn't love a good challenge like that, especially at a time uh, when we are, you know, uh, trying to find different ways to uh, occupy ourselves? Reading is a fantastic way to do that, to educate yourself and entertain yourself at the same time. Plus, the chance for prizes. You can't go wrong. No, you cannot go wrong. (laughs) Well, Michael, this has been a a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time and for uh, detailing all of the resources that the London Public Library has for us. All right. And then once again, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Stay safe and be well, okay? You too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Michael Sacconi. He's the CEO of the London Public Library, sharing some information about resources uh, for uh, parents, kids, other adults uh, when it comes to uh, reading material that is meant to educate us about race and fighting back against anti-Black racism and systemic racism in general. So some fantastic resources. As Michael was saying, you can go to the library's website, www.lpl.ca forward slash LPL recommends to see that list of uh, curated titles of of books and other resources uh, that will help you along in the journey of learning. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. We'll be right back to close out the show on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. 
I am your host, Jess Brady, joined alongside, once more, by Matthew McNaughton. Hey, everybody. Hello, you're back after your long weekend. I am. Fantastic. Nice couple of days off there. How did it go? It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> long it, weekends are so nice. Yeah, yeah. And it... it uh, my plan for the weekend was to do nothing, mm -hmm. and nothing is what I did. Fantastic. Yeah, I uh, I, I did uh, I did socially distance see some friends. Nice, which was nice. We went out for a nice afternoon on one of the family farms, and then we we were able to actually get a table at a patio. Fantastic, which was quite nice. But other than and then right after that, I got home and I slept for like fifteen hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah that that was my usual Friday night when I was doing mornings because I, I never sleep very well when I am on that shift because yeah. I'm, I'm always anxious about oversleeping in the mornings when you have to get up. Yeah. And then that, I mean, quite annoyingly leads you to stay up too late because you're just anxious about going to sleep. Your so then still going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and I would just, you know, watch more TV than I should have or be on my phone <laughs> for longer. And then anyway, it would get to Friday and I would be absolutely exhausted and I would quite often sleep for 12 plus hours from Friday into Saturday, well into the afternoon. <laughs> it happens. It, and I think for me that like, I just didn't know how exhausted I was because mm -hmm. like, and not not that I'm complaining about no, no. work, but like I went from going right to school. I'd, I'd be going to school five, six days a week. Then when everything shut down, work was like, well, we need you, buddy. And yeah. so I went from that to work five, sometimes six days a week. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love my job and I love doing it, but everyone needs to just recharge their batteries. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. So, yeah. you know, you have to do that. And I'm happy to be back. Absolutely. We're happy to have you back. We had we had a fun time with, with Nick Van Overloop Great over the guy. last couple of days. He is absolutely lovely. Um, but yeah, we're always happy to have you here with us. Oh, so thank you. Yeah. And it's been uh, it's been a busy week so far. Now you'll have that that times or the times through the week where you'll be like, what day is it? Because it'll feel like Monday to you, but it's yeah. really Wednesday already. Yeah, I've already been thrown off my game. That's, uh, <laughs> <ugh>. <laughs> yeah, the, and we've had this debate in the newsroom about what day is better to have off on a long weekend. Would you prefer to have the Friday or the Monday? I am firmly a Monday person. See, I'm a Friday guy. Oh. I'm definitely a Friday guy because I, I like the... Uh, I like the routine of the week. You okay. Know, I, I don't like those calendars that start the week on Sunday and go to Saturday. No, yeah, that's weird. I, I hate those. For me, it's Monday to Sunday. Yes. And if I can get the if, if I can get the Friday, I usually prefer that because then it's the Monday, it's the start of that fresh new line. It's Okay. I'm a very linear person. That's cool. See, I am pro Monday for a day off simply because then it makes me feel like I'm cheating that week. Like, ha ha, <laughs> I have less to do that week. So, I feel that, yeah. Yeah, I look forward to And then part of me is also like, ha ha, everybody else is back at work. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit of, of smugness there when I have my Mondays off. I did feel that a little bit. I'm yeah, not going to lie. I'm sure you did. <laughs> I can't blame you one bit because I feel the exact same way when I do that. So, you know, it is what it is. But we are happy to have you back. Thank you. And I'm glad that it was restful. And um, yeah, I'm looking at vacation time as well. So I've, I've tentatively booked in some time. Good. Uh, not within the next... <laughs> oh, you want 
to get rid of me? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so we'll we'll see how that all pans out. But yeah, vacation time, especially when you have beautiful weather like this. Oh yeah, and it's it's just it's that time. Plus now we're into phase two, so things are a little bit uh, more accessible for vacation time, and you know you can see more friends at a, a socially distance uh, distant distance i'm getting all the distances and distance to all mixed up but at a, at a, a safe distance you can see your friends that's what i meant to say so yeah. there you have it that's our I've, i believe that is our bright spots of the day just talking about vacation time and how lovely it is to have that that time to yourself and if you're if you're listening and you need to take a vacation but you haven't yet do it do it try everyone try everyone needs it and you know what like it's before I took those two little days off, I could have kept going, yeah, just fine. But today, I feel I feel great. I feel you know re-energized, and it, it does. Even if you just take an extra day off, even if you give yourself a three-day weekend, it'll do you wonders. It really will. Yeah. So that's my next plan of action: long weekend. Yeah. Don't know when it's going to happen, but <laughs> soon, soon. Well, we are going to wrap it up there. Matt, thanks so much for all your hard work today. No problem. Good to be back. We will do it all over again tomorrow. And many, many thanks to all of our guests this afternoon uh, for chatting with me. It was an absolute pleasure uh, having discussions with all of you. Many thanks, of course, to the 980 CFPL team here, Jake Jeffrey doing our producing work with us, and uh, Mike Stubbs, Devin Peacock, Craig Needles, the entire newsroom. Thanks a bunch for all of your help, especially also Kelly Wong today helping to uh, organize an interview session as well. So many thanks. I hope everybody has a fantastic evening and a great start to your day tomorrow. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, and be kind.